Thank you, Tom. Please keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 2. It feels so good to be back with you. Uh, it, it seems uh, like I was gone for a very, very long time, even though uh, you know, we were just gone for a short period of time on vacation. Took Ellen out to the metropolis of Marfa, Texas for vacation. Believe it or not, we stayed in James Dean's room at the El Paisano Hotel there in Marfa. Uh, Ellen said, don't get too excited about it. It was when nobody had ever heard of James Dean. So it was, uh, so uh, the room was great. We had a great time in Marfa, except that everything was closed in Marfa on Monday. So we decided to go to Alpine on Tuesday, and guess what? In Alpine, everything's open on Monday, but closed on Tuesday. So Ellen said, hey, maybe we ought to go back to San Antonio and civilization. <laughs> so, so here we are. We did see the Marfa lights. Did see the, have you heard of the Marfa lights? Have seen the Marfa lights? Uh, my take on the Marfa lights, uh, the white lights mean they're coming toward you. The red lights mean they're going away from you. That's my take on the Marfa lights. If you've ever been out there, you, you know it really is beautiful. I, I love the Davis Mountains. Uh, my first time out there, I, I thought it was gorgeous. I thought it was absolutely stunning to go out in sort of an august, austere piece of, of, of property out in West Texas and, and to be reminded of the greatness of God's power in, in creation. And what we're going to do this morning right now is to study God's Word and what it is that God creates us into. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful that You have given us this Word, and we pray that this Word always reside in our hearts and minds in, in such a way that, that we know it, but, but even more deeply than that, Father, that it goes all the way down into our soul. And, and it makes its great impact. It, it makes its great print on our life and, and shapes us into the kind of people that You would have us be. We're thankful for this time. We're thankful that we can come together in Mass and, and to sing to You, Father, the, the, with, the, with the beauty of, of, our, of, our, of our hearts pouring out praise to You. And not only to glorify You, but to encourage each other. And to gather around the, the, the table and to be reminded through the eating of unleavened bread and drinking of the fruit of the vine that we are not our own. That we come into Your kingdom, come into Your family at a great price. And it's a price, Father, that we never want to be flippant with or lackadaisical with. We want to remember it always, Father, as, as a, a gift of suffering that, that brings us into this bright, beautiful light of Your presence. And so as we study this sacred text this morning, what we're asking in the name of Jesus is that You will give us eyes that see it, ears that hear it, and, and turn toward You, Father, and, and live the life that You would have us live in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a fellow by the name of Kirby John Caldwell who's written a book, and in that book he tells a story about Evander Holyfield. Now, you know Evander Holyfield, a great uh, heavyweight champion boxer from the 1990s, very famous individual. What you may not know is that Evander Holyfield grew up as the youngest of eight children. And he grew up in that family never knowing who his father was. And during those growing up years, he discovered that he had a penchant for, for boxing. turned out that he was pretty good at it. And uh, by the time he was 21, he had really achieved a lot in the boxing world, but had aspirations at 21 to become 
the heavyweight champion of the world. The problem was at that time at 21, Evander Holyfield was only a cruiserweight. And he was vexed a little bit by what seemed the impossibility of being able to grow from a cruiserweight uh, 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 title to the heavyweight category. And he was vexed about whether or not he had this, this DNA makeup, this genetic makeup, that he had it in him to be able to make that kind of a growth spurt. Well, his mother, in only ways that mothers can intuit what's happening inside of their children, especially when they're distressed, his mother discovered that he was, he was vexed about this. And so she takes Evander Holyfield and put, loads him into a car and, and drives him when he's 21 to a, a small town in South Alabama. And she drives up to this workplace and she points at this workplace to a man, this 230-pound, broad-shouldered lumberjack, and she says, Evander, that is your dad. And in that moment, Evander Holyfield knew what he had in him. He knew what he could grow into. And from that point on, he had a clear vision of what he could become. Now, there's a conviction. Let's leave Evander Holyfield for a minute and let's talk about us. For a long time now, I've been uh, thinking about, uh, and it's become sort of a conviction for me, about the life of a disciple. It's up here on the screen, and the conviction is this, that we cannot fully live out the implications of the call to discipleship without knowing where God is. Let me read that again. We cannot fully live out the implications of the call to discipleship without knowing where God is. Now, as Christians, we spend a lot of time studying the Word and, and, and studying passages like Tom Hardy just read for us. And we know a lot about the character of God. We know who God is in all of the universe. He is the supreme value of all of the universe. But it's equally important for us to know where He is. Now let me read to you a couple of passages. The first from Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 19. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus after talking about all of these fantastic things that God has done and Christ has done and the Spirit of God has done for the church and how the church has been brought together through the cross of Jesus by grace. He says, consequently, as a consequence of all of this great work that God has done on your behalf, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. That's verse 19. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief what? Cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And then let me take you back to the passage that Tom read for us, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Peter, using similar language, says, As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now I pose the question, where do you think God dwells? He dwells all over the place. He dwells in the universe. He dwells all over His creation. He dwells in uh, omniscience wherever He wants to be. But that's, that's drilled down a little bit. Do you know specifically in your own life where God is? 
According to Peter and according to Paul, God dwells in you by His Spirit. That God dwells in us by His Spirit. Now, the language of this text takes us back to a lot of places in the Old Testament. But there's one that I'm thinking of in particular from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 19. You know the story. Israel has been brought out of Egypt. They have gone across the the, the Red Sea. They have been saved from from the the intent, the mild intent of Pharaoh's chariots. They have been saved from enemies. They have brought to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God refers, in Exodus chapter 19, He refers to Israel as a holy nation, Sound familiar? And a kingdom of priests. And beginning with with his instructions to them after giving them the Ten Commandments, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you, and here's the instructions, to build this big tent. And this big tent is going to be called the tabernacle, and it is going to be a place where I am going, God is speaking, where I am going to dwell among my people. Now, everybody in the world at that point, at least at the foot of Mount Sinai, realized that God could not live inside of a tent. I mean, He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of everything. God is so big, there's no way He could fit inside of a tent. But everybody realized the intent of it. The intent of the tent was this, that He was choosing to dwell among His people. Now, Peter and Paul use these texts and they apply them to the church. In the Old Testament, the people made God a sanctuary. But in the New Testament, God makes His people His sanctuary. You see how that's being applied? Up here on the screen is another statement I want you to write down somewhere on the, on the announcement sheet or someplace. Christians are fashioned into a royal residence for God. It is a spiritual house. Christians are fashioned into a place that God is pleased by His Spirit to dwell. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul, kind of following these same lines, says, Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple? He's asking him something. It's kind of a rhetorical question. I mean, he knows because he's taught them that they are God's temple. He's reminding him of that in light of the way that they've been living. He says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? You see, there is no chasm. There is no chasm between us and God. God dwells in your midst through His Spirit. And then in verse 17, He says, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is what? Say it, church. God's temple is sacred. That means it's holy. God's temple is sacred. God's temple is holy. And you together are that temple. You know, every time I read that passage, it just makes so much sense to me. Because, I mean, doesn't it make sense that this would be the way that it is since Christ was a carpenter long before He was a kingdom builder? I mean, Christ is the creator of the universe. John says in John chapter 1 that there was nothing that was made that has been made that wasn't made by Him. And for the first years of his life, he was a carpenter. His whole life has been about construction. His whole life has been about putting things together and making them work and making them beautiful. And then over in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, as Christ has started that ministry and he's kind of getting to the apex of his teaching and the intent of his ministry, he says, you know what? I want you to tell me who men say that I am. He's dragged these apostles away to a private place and they say, well, you know, some people say this and other people say that and some people say even John the Baptist. One of the prophets, maybe even Elijah. 
And Jesus looks at him and says, but I want to know who you really think that I am. And Peter, sometimes Peter's not that pretty. Sometimes Peter is really not all that beautiful. But this is one of those moments in which Peter just shines. And he looks Jesus in the eye and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, well done. And you know what? On that confession, I'm going to what? Say it, church, say it louder. Build. I'm going to build. I'm going to construct. I'm going to erect my church. I'm going to build my church. And you know what? The gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail against it. Now, in John chapter 14, Jesus says, you know, I'm going to go away. And I'm going to go to that place where God is. I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to go to the place where God is. And I am going to build a place for you. But what Jesus has also said is that on earth He's building a building for Christ, for, for God. And as, as a construction guy, as a builder, as a creator, as one who is building His church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it, as one who has gone away to build a, a home for us and who is building a home for God on earth right now, guess what the building blocks are. Guess what the stones are that He is erecting this, this, this beautiful mansion a place for God's dwelling. To, we are those stones. We are the building material. We are the stones that are quarried from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And what we find in this text, 1 Peter chapter 2, is that there's sort of three tests that, that Peter gives for what it means to be the people in whom God's Spirit dwells. That God dwells by His Spirit. Do we have the right kind of foundation? So there's a foundational issue says, do we have the right kind of lifestyle? That is, if we got the foundation right, are we building rightly on the foundation? That is, do we have the lifestyle that reflects the fact that we are priests? And then number three, do we proclaim the right message? That is, is does the house, does, does the priesthood, do the sacrifices that are built on the right foundation proclaim the right message? Let's start with foundation. In the ancient world, as it is today, you have to have a serious foundation. And in the ancient world... This, this cornerstone, or in some of the translations, the capstone was incredibly important. It was the stone around which all of this construction was achieved. It was the stone that gave the, the direction and the parameters of the building. The stone was so important that it became the focal point of everything. And it was the, the, the cornerstone that gave the structure its integrity. In other words, if you mess up on that cornerstone, you're not going to have a very good building. You mess up on the cornerstone, you mess up on the building. You get the cornerstone right, then you get the building right. And, and Peter realizes that this metaphor, the cornerstone from the Old Testament, is, 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 is being applied to Christ and the church. And so important was that cornerstone that Peter is emphasizing and reminding to them to make sure that they, in their lives as disciples of Jesus, that they have the cornerstone right, that they have the foundation right. And so in verse 4 he says, Come to Him. Come to Him. And then drop down to verse 7, he says, He is the cornerstone. Who you're coming to is the cornerstone. Now for Peter... There is absolutely no neutrality on this issue, the issue of the cornerstone, the issue of the right kind of foundation. He's saying that you either make Jesus the cornerstone of your life out of which you base your life and build your life up from that cornerstone or that stone, that cornerstone becomes the stone of stumbling for all men. 
one way or the other. He's either the cornerstone on which you build or he becomes the stumbling block. And you'll remember that it's the same Peter that preached in the early days of the church there in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He's preaching to all of the people about the foundation of Christ for everything in relationship to God. And he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name given under heaven to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, at the end of, of most sermons, I give an invitation. I'm going to do something a little controversial. I'm going to give the invitation right now. don't want you to respond to it until the end. But I want you to know that we here in this church, we invite everyone who has not done this step, when we sing again, to come down to the front and be met by our shepherds and to go up into that baptistry and to confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior and be baptized and to have your sins washed away and for God's Spirit to come inside of you. And what that means is that you're basing everything in your life, and this is what it means to be a member of this church, quite frankly, that you are basing everything in your life on Jesus as the cornerstone. What it means is this. Are you committing to the truth that no one comes to God the Father except through God the Son? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. You've heard of Evander Holyfield. You probably have never heard of Edward Moat. Edward Moat grew up uh, the, the, the son, very, very poor, the son of pub owners in England a long time ago. And he grew up without any kind of a knowledge of God. In fact, he says, you know, later in life he said, you know, at that time I was so ignorant that I didn't even know there was such a thing as a God. But by the time he was 18, he had been taught the gospel, he was baptized, and for a lot of those years afterwards, he was a carpenter and uh, construct, he built homes and furniture and stuff. But for... All of his life, after he became a Christian, he was a preacher. And he preached for a church for, for a long, long time, all of those years, in Sussex, England. And he was, he, was, he was a devout man, and he was so admired, and he was so revered and loved that people just loved him. And at, at, as he was getting older in age, they loved him so much that they said, we want to give you all of this land and the, the church building that sits on it. We want to give that to you. And he says, I don't want the, the church or the land. All I want is the pulpit. And when I stop preaching Christ, you can take that away as well. He retired at the age of 76. He died when he was 77. But before he died, he penned the words to a song that we've already sung this morning. The words of that song are very familiar to us. They go, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy, holy lean." on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid, say it church, rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Friends, we stake our future on Christ as the foundation. And I am here to tell you, that Jesus, the Son of God, will always be the cornerstone of the MacArthur Park Church of Christ or we will change the name. Secondly, lifestyle. 
You get that foundation right. That is Jesus Christ who is the, the, the cornerstone. He's the right kind of foundation. Then you have to build on that foundation which leads us to lifestyle. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a, what? Holy priesthood. Say it together. Holy priesthood. And what are we doing? Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I want you to underline those words, priesthood and, and uh, sacrifices, in your Bible. Now, in the Old Testament, the people made a sanctuary. In the New Testament, the people are made a sanctuary in which God dwells among His people by His Spirit. In the Old Testament, the people had a priesthood. In the New Testament, people are the priesthood. Now, it means, really, that every Christian is a priest of God, a holy priest of God. Now, it does not mean that we are taking to God an atonement for sin. We, it's nearly so simple that it's, it's insulting to say that, but just as a reminder, that's a once and for all sacrifice by Jesus. That's why He's the cornerstone. He is the one that made that sacrifice. We have any hope of relationship with God because of the cross of Jesus and the blood that He shed in His resurrection. But that doesn't mean that there aren't implications for what it means for us to be a priest. You know what it means for you guys to be a priest? It means that you don't have to go through an elder. You don't have to go through me or any of the other ministers. You don't have to go through a deacon or any other human being to have access to God. You know what else it means? It means that you have a lifestyle of, of, of holiness. You're not just any kind of a priest. You're a holy priest. Now, uh, you know, think, think about, uh, about it this way. You, you come in here early on a Sunday morning and you walk into this room and you're shocked by what you see that's up on the walls. A, uh, a, a gang of, of, of kiddos have come in with their spray cans, all kinds of different colors. They've broken in and they have sprayed every four-letter word, every vulgar thought, every vulgar word, profane word in the English language. They have just spray-painted it all around this, this auditorium. What are you going to feel? You're going to feel disgust. You're going to feel some anger. You're going to feel upset. I mean, you're, you're going to be thinking, how in the world, how dare they do this? Don't they know that this is a, a place where God is worshipped? In the same way, if we ourselves, we are the church, the people are the church, and God dwells in us, is it not inappropriate for there to be certain things attached to us as priests? We live a holy lifestyle. There is a lifestyle of holiness that we adopt through the identity of being called into a priesthood, a holy priesthood, by God. And then on top of that, there is a lifestyle of sacrifice. Because we're priests, there is a lifestyle of sacrifices that we adopt meaning that we are not self-centered people. Priests have things to do. Even though we're not going to be giving, sacrificing atonement for, uh, making atonement for sin through sacrifice, there are sacrifices that priests make, that we make. Let me give you a couple of examples. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of what? Of praise. The fruit of the lips that openly profess His name. When you come in here, what we are doing is offering up to God a sacrifice of praise as we praise His name and sing to Him. Drop to the very next verse, verse 16. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. There, you know, you're being generous with your things and you're ministering to people through hospitality and, and benevolence and these kinds of things. For with such what? Sacrifices, God is pleased. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18. Paul says to that church in Philippi, you know, I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts 
The gifts you sent. You know what those gifts are? A fragrant offering. An acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Go over to Romans chapter 15, verse 16. One of my favorites. He gave me the priestly duty. It's a priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Every priest has the duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. And then he doesn't stop there so that the Gentiles might become what? An offering, acceptable offering to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. As priests, we're all called to be a part of that message, that proclamation of the wonderful light that we've been called into, the wonderful deeds of God. We have all been called to proclaim that with our lives and with our mouths. And then finally, there are others, but Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It sounds kind of funny, but you know what you do as a priest? You offer yourself. You offer yourself. Knowing that you being built on the foundation, being Jesus of Nazareth, and adopting the lifestyle, having been called into that, 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 that kingdom, and being called into that kingdom of priests, you realize that every day you get up and you make a sacrifice of all that you are to become all that God wants you to be. James Calvert was a missionary to, to the Fiji Islands back when there were lots of cannibals that were there. True story. Uh, cannibals that were intent on killing everybody that was not a part of their tribe. And as they're approaching the Fiji Islands, he and the captain are out on the, the, the deck and they're looking at the islands as they're approaching. And the captain is fearful for James Calvert and all of his company that's going to go and to try to plant a church among the, these, these folk, these cannibal folk on the Fiji Islands. And he says, you know that you're going to lose your life and the lives of those that are with you if you go on that island. And James Calvert replied to him and said, we died before we came. The last thing, and we'll close with this, is proclamation. We are given a new identity in order for God's identity to be seen and heard in us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. You know, you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and, and God has just been getting slammed. His reputation slammed throughout all of history. It begins in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan, the serpent, says to Eve and says to Adam, you know, did God really say that? God must not be all that good because you're not really going to die. God knows it. And this is why He doesn't want you to eat of that fruit. is because you will become like God. You won't die, but you'll become like a God. God is not good. Don't trust God. God is not faithful to you. God can't be trusted. And all, from that point on, the word out on the street is that is a distorted message about God, that He is not good, that He is not faithful, and He is not to be trusted. And you know what God is doing by putting His Spirit in you and, and building your life on the foundation of Jesus and, and helping you to develop a lifestyle as a priest? You know what He's doing? He's trying to get people that are going to tell His side of the story. 
That's what we do every day on the streets of anywhere in the world where God's name and His message and, His, and the truth of, of, of the gospel is being distorted. God is looking for anybody, everybody, somebody that will tell His side of the story. Now, sometimes that means that we do it with our lives. That means that in the good that we do, those are offerings acceptable to God and good and beautiful in God's sight. And there are also ways of, of, of trying to explain the goodness of God to other people. And, and talking about uh, the gospel and, and the forgiveness and the blessings of, of strength and of a clear conscience and the, what happens when the Spirit comes, all of that can be seen in the way that we approach adversity, the way that we approach turmoil, which are kind of negative things, but even in positive things like how in the world would a church as ethnic, uh, racially and ethnically as diverse as the MacArthur Park Church of Christ, how are they so unified? When no other place inside of San Antonio, inside of Bear County, is as unified in a mixture of humanity as we find inside of that church? Or how about not just the ethnic racial differences and the diversity, but in the way that we relate to one another socially, even though we come from different parts of the world and sometimes even speak different languages, or even economically. How is it that people outside of these walls, outside of this fellowship, you know, cannot get along with each other because of the diversity of their economic means? But they can somehow when God puts His Spirit inside of them. It's not only through our lifestyle, but it's also through our words. At some point... We teach the life-changing, profound beauty of what it is that God has done for us that we call the gospel. You know, sometimes people want to know, preacher, do you have an agenda for the church? And, you, you know, I'll tell you the truth, I do. And this is it. I want this church to be built on Jesus Christ. And I want every person here to understand their identity of, of, of who they are because of where God is in us. And to understand what that means in terms of a lifestyle and in terms of a proclamation of talking and, and living and communicating the wonderful light, the wonderful greatness of the gospel and the beauty of God's presence in our lives, communicate that through our lives to other people in this community. So that when they see us, so that when they see us, they understand what it's all about. Or, it, or, it, or at least attracted to it enough to want to find out more. I want as many as possible, as soon as possible, by all means as possible, to come into the kingdom of God. We build on the foundation of Jesus of Nazareth. We do, uh, have the lifestyle of priests, and there's a certain proclamation that we have. It is the wonderfulness of, of being a son and a child, a daughter of God. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. You already know what the invitation is about. If there's a way, any way, that this is important to you and, and coming to Christ and finding that forgiveness, the forgiveness of, of the sins of your soul and finding that peace and having that relationship with God that is a blessing time and time and time again in life. We want you to come down and talk to these shepherds about that very thing. Or if there's any other way that we can minister to you, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God together.
Oh, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy. 